0: Section 1 of The Shipwreck, a poem by William Falconer, with life by Robert Carruthers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Phil Schampf. The Shipwreck by William Falconer. Memoir of Falconer, Part 1, by Robert Carruthers. That genius will vindicate its celestial origin and burst through all obstructions is an axiom illustrated by many splendid and interesting examples. The energies of an original creative mind and bold imagination can never be wholly repressed or obscured by circumstances. The cloud that carries the electric fire conceals it but for a time and its manifestations appear all the brighter from the previous gloom. In the list of eminent self-taught men who have shed luster on our imaginative literature, a high rank must be assigned to the poet of the shipwreck. No distinguished author ever rose from a lower level, or had to contend with more depressing difficulties. His early years were doomed to hardship, disappointment, and misery and his situation as a common seaman, a ship-boy on the high and giddy mast, precluded nearly all opportunities of literary study or advancement, until after long years of severe and irksome toil. In this respect he stands alone in our annals. Burns, Gifford, Bloomfield, or Hogg had no such hard ascent to climb. The shepherd on his hill, and the rustic at his plough, Have each a certain range of natural freedom, and chances of intellectual companionship and enjoyment. The mechanic also has his hours of leisure and access to books. None of them are debarred the supreme luxury and elevating influences of Sabbath rest, summer walks, and female society. But the young apprenticed seaman is restricted to one set of associates, often men coarse, ignorant, and boisterous and is chained to a round of duties and dangers too frequently enforced with all the tyranny or caprice of arbitrary power from which there is little intermission and no escape a love of adventure or of passionate desire to visit foreign countries may sometimes soften the picture and veil its harsher features but in the case of falconer there appears to have been no such alluring medium he entered with strong reluctance on his profession of a sailor and was only forced into it by utter helplessness and destitution no other outlet seemed attainable every gate of hope was shut against him he therefore submitted forlorn of heart as he tells us to the severe decree and embarked on that faithless and stormy element from which he was destined ultimately to reap his poetical fame And in which he found a sad and premature grave. William Falconer was born in Edinburgh on the 11th of February, 1732. In the parish register, his father, who was also named William, is designated a wig maker. In other accounts, he is termed a poor barber. He was probably both at different periods of his life but at this time the wig-makers formed a class of respectable burgesses in the scottish capital the maiden name of the poet's mother was agnes shand and she was remembered as a careful and exemplary matron intelligent industrious and affectionate the elder falconer carried on business in that ancient quarter of the town known as the netherbow where stood the once famous port or gate condemned to destruction by the government of george the second in petty and ludicrous resentment of the porteous mob of seventeen thirty six but which flourished long afterwards with its towers battlements and spire this antique structure extended right across high street dividing the most picturesque of city thoroughfares from the privileged and historical district of the canongate Shops and houses with wooden fronts and four-stairs were clustered round the port, and in one of these dwelt William Falconer, a citizen remarkable for his humor and eccentricity, who has been compared to Partridge in Tom Jones, and who, like that learned and witty tonsor, was somewhat unthrifty and unfortunate pity it is that the jest and tale which gladden these little coteries do not always carry prosperity with their sunshine the merriest man in the netherbow was one of the most unlucky of its tradesmen william falconer became insolvent and the wig-making establishment was given up his friends then came to his assistance and he was enabled to begin business as a grocer the shop was chiefly superintended by his wife And on the death of this prudent and excellent partner, the affairs of the old man again became deranged. Recovery was hopeless, and the latter days of William Falconer were passed in extreme indigence. The family of this unfortunate couple consisted of three children the poet, and a brother and sister, both born deaf and dumb, whose pitiable condition added to the other calamities of the poor household. The helpless brother and sister found an asylum as pauper patients in the Edinburgh Infirmary. William, after a little schooling with one Webster, was put to sea. He was then probably not more than twelve or thirteen years of age, but active and eager for the acquisition of knowledge. A love of nature also, the poet's inheritance, came upon him. As a stripling, he said, his bosom danced to nature's charms. In the course of his foreign wanderings and night watches, he must occasionally have recalled the unique and magnificent features of his native city and its surrounding scenery. But the distressing circumstances of his boyhood could not be recollected without painful emotion, and in his poetry he is silent as to the scene of his birth and childhood. It is possible that the humble fortunes of the family had not reached their lowest ebb till some years after the birth of the poet in describing under the name of arion his early attainments and misfortunes falconer conveys the impression that he had at least entered upon a liberal course of education on him fair science dawned in happier hour awakening into bloom young fancy's flower but soon adversity with freezing blast the blossom withered and the dawn o'ercast, forlorn of heart and by severe decree condemned reluctant to the faithless sea with long farewell he left the laurel grove where science and the tuneful sisters rove we have however the poet's own statement made repeatedly to his friend grosvenor hunter that his education was confined to reading writing and a little arithmetic and the early age at which he must have left home added to the straitened circumstances of his parents may be held as confirmatory of the fact the farewell to science and the laurel grove was probably in those days of artificial poetry deemed necessary and indispensable as an establishment of the narrative falconer was entered apprentice on board a merchant vessel belonging to leith the usual period of apprenticeship for a sailor was then four years but it is doubtful whether falconer served the whole of this period before he had completed his eighteenth year, we read of his having exchanged the merchant service for the Royal Navy, of his wandering, apparently without any fixed employment, through various scenes in the East, and of his engaging himself at the port of Alexandria as a mate on board the Britannia, a merchantman engaged in the Levant trade. In the Royal Navy, the purser of his ship was Archibald Campbell son of professor campbell of st andrews and who is known as author of a parody on the style of dr johnson entitled lexaphanes to this literary purser falconer acted as a servant and according to dr curie the biographer of burns campbell delighted in improving the mind of the young seaman and afterwards when the latter had attained celebrity felt a pride in boasting of his scholar the period of tuition however must have been a brief one for in the autumn of seventeen fifty falconer then only eighteen as we have stated sailed from alexandria for venice as second mate of the britannia such an appointment for one so young speaks well for his proficiency as a sailor the british merchantmen at this time as we learn from mr stagner clark remained trading from port to port in the levant and mediterranean until ordered for england when they generally loaded with silks at leghorn the britannia had wafted her commercial store along the shores of africa and italy and having touched at Alexandria and crete sailed for venice whence she was to steer for england the vessel however was overtaken by a dreadful storm off cape colonna on the coast of greece and suffered shipwreck the whole of the crew consisting of about fifty men perished with the exception of three of the number of whom falconer happily was one the incidents of the voyage and its disastrous termination left an indelible impression on the young sailor's memory and years afterwards he selected them as the subject of that poem which has rendered his name and misfortunes immortal after the wreck of the britannia and his return to england falconer revisited his native city and there made his first appearance as an author the death of frederick prince of wales in march seventeen fifty one called forth numerous elegies and lamentations and among the public mourners was our young poetical mariner his effusion printed at edinburgh is entitled a poem sacred to the memory of his royal highness frederick prince of wales the poem it must be admitted was one of the most unpromising of youthful productions melpomene has rarely been invoked with less success for conventional as the poetical style and diction of that period were such puerile and inflated lines as the following the best in the piece are below even the ordinary standard oh bear me to some awful silent glade where cedars form an unremitting shade where never track of human feet was known where never cheerful light of phoebus shone where chirping linnets warble tales of love and hoarser winds howl murmuring through the grove where some unhappy wretch i mourns his doom deep melancholy wandering through the gloom where solitude and meditation roam and where no dawning glimpse of hope can come place me in such an unfrequented shade to speak to none but with the mighty dead to assist the pouring rains with brimful eyes and aid hoarse howling boreas with my sighs The youth and circumstances of the writer form an excuse for such immaturity of taste and judgment. But it is curious to find Falconer, many years afterwards, in the second edition of his shipwreck, allude with some complacency to this first production. Thou hast taught the tragic harp to mourn, in early youth or royal Frederick's urn. His desire to appear loyal and steadfast in his loyalty had overpowered his critical perceptions. For about ten years subsequent to this period, our author is supposed to have engaged in the merchant service. He has enumerated all the shores he traversed from the Peruvian regions to savage Labrador, and from Damascus, pride of Asian plains, to the isthmus of Darien. Adversity, he said, still pursued him but self-improvement was not neglected he picked up acquaintance with the french spanish and italian languages and he occasionally when in britain sent a copy of verses to that popular repertory of fugitive literature the gentleman's magazine some of these pieces have been identified and reprinted the best of them are nautical showing that he had at length struck into the true path of his genius The following description of a 90-gun ship is correct and animated. Amidst a wood of oaks with canvas leaves which formed a floating forest on the waves, there stood a tower whose vast stupendous size reared its huge mast and seemed to gore the skies, from which a bloody pendant stretched afar its comet tail, denouncing ample war. Two younger giants of inferior height displayed their sporting streamers to the sight. The base below another island rose, to pour Britannia's thunder on her foes. With bulk immense, like Etna, she surveys above the rest, the lesser Cyclades, profuse of gold in luster like the sun, splendid with regal luxury she shone, lavish in wealth luxuriant in her pride behold the gilded mass exulting ride her curious prow divides the silver waves in the salt ooze her radiant side she laves from stem to stern her wondrous length survey rising a beauteous venus from the sea her stem with naval drapery engraved showed mimic warriors who the tempest braved whose visage fierce defied the lashing surge of gallic pride the emblematic scourge tremendous figures low her stern displays and holds a pharos of distinguished blaze by night it shines a star of brightest form to point her way and light her through the storm see dread engagements pictured to the life see admirals maintain the glorious strife here breathing images in painted ire seem for their country's freedom to expire victorious fleets the flying fleets pursue here strikes a ship and there exults a crew a frigate here blows up with hideous glare and adds fresh terrors to the bleeding war but leaving feigned ornaments behold eight hundred youths of heart and sinew bold Mount up her shrouds, and to her tops ascend. Some haul her braces, some her foresail bend. Full ninety brazen guns her portholes fill, Ready with nitrous magazines to kill. From dread embrasures formidably peep, And seem to threaten ruin to the deep. On pivots fixed and well-ranged swivels lie, Or to point downward, or to brave the sky while pedereros swell with infant rage prepared those small with fury to engage thus armed may britain long her state maintain and with triumphant navies rule the main not less fateful are the satirical sketches entitled the chaplain's petition and the midshipman but they have no great poetical merit the admirable naval song of the storm Cease, rude, boreas, blustering railer, which the singing of Inclodon once made so popular, has been assigned to Falconer instead of its reputed author, George Alexander Stevens. There is a mixture of carelessness and jollity, combined with a flow of lyrical melody in this song, which appears to us quite foreign to Falconer's usual manner. It was certainly easier and more natural for Stevens a good songwriter and a man of imitative talent to play the sailor and import some nautical phrases than for falconer to write once and once only in a strain different from all his other compositions we believe also that if the storm had been written by our author he would have acknowledged and claimed it proud as he was of displaying his naval knowledge and enthusiasm from the merchant service falconer is reported to have re-entered the royal navy and to have been on board the Ramillies Man of War when that ship was wrecked in the channel near Plymouth in February 1760. The officers and men of the Ramillies numbered 734, and of these only one midshipman and 25 seamen were saved. The poet is said to have been the midshipman, but we can find no authority for the assertion had falconer sailed with the ramillies or been preserved a second time from shipwreck under circumstances so tragic and memorable he would scarcely have refrained from some allusion to the event in his poetry we have also the distinct statement of mr clark that after the wreck of the britannia in seventeen fifty falconer continued in the merchant service until he had gained the patronage of his royal highness edward duke of york by dedicating to him his poem of the shipwreck that great narrative poem so truly british and subject in subject and feeling and so original in execution appeared in may 1762 in the form of a thin quarto volume price five shillings it was illustrated with a chart of the ship's course and an engraving of the elevation of a merchant ship with all her masts yards sails and rigging such a work was a novelty in what was termed polite literature the descriptive muse never before appeared in such a nautical costume the title-page bore that the volume was printed for the author an indication probably that the poet had not been able to find a purchaser for the copyright of his work and it was dedicated by permission to the duke of york rear admiral of the blue squadron of his majesty's fleet to this dedication A plain unflattering inscription, Falconer affixed his name. The title of the work was simply The Shipwreck, a poem in three cantos by a sailor, with the motto from Virgil, Aeneid Book two verse five Quique Ipse Miserima Vidi et Quorum magna Fui It is gratifying to find that the royal patron acknowledged the honor conferred upon him. And testified his sense of the merits of the poem by a prompt and substantial mark of regard. He advised Falconer to quit the merchant service and enter the Royal Navy, and in consequence of the Duke's recommendation and influence, the poet was rated as a midshipman on board Sir Edward Hawke's ship, the Royal George. At the same time, his poem no less rapidly advanced in popularity though only an outline or skeleton of what it was afterwards to become under the hands of its author the shipwreck was hailed as one of our finest and most original national poems its descriptions were pronounced to be not inferior to those in the aeneid and in versifying his sea language falconer was held to have achieved a greater miracle of success than that accomplished by homer in reducing his catalogue of ships into flowing and sonorous verse such exaggerated praise was an error, but it was an error on the right side. It is seldom that the world is too generous to those who minister to its instruction or delight. This was the happiest period of Falconer's life. He could tread the quarter deck of the Royal George with conscious and justifiable pride. He had won poetical fame, unquestionably the dearest wish of his heart. He had, unsolicited, obtained professional advancement and he enjoyed the patronage of a young and gallant prince, who had the taste to appreciate and the power to reward his genius. Though long buffeted by adverse gales of fortune, he was only yet in his thirtieth year still eager to run the race for manly honours, and hope that had so often allured and deceived him, might now assume her fairest form and brightest colours. His gloomy forebodings and querulous discontent were all hushed in joy and gratulation love also was joined to hope falconer's temperament seems to have been grave and serious perhaps austere his appearance was not prepossessing bespeaking the rough sailor rather than the poet but he had all the poet's warmth and depth of feeling and his solitary and somewhat rugged nature when kindled up by contact with a congenial mind found expression in fluent and impressive speech. Those who have most keenly felt adversity and neglect are soonest melted by kindness and sympathy. The worth and talents of Falconer attracted the notice of a young lady, daughter of the surgeon of Sheerness Yard. An intimacy sprung up between them, though discountenanced by Mr. Hicks, the lady's father, and the charms of Miranda called forth some pleasing ballad stanzas from the author of the shipwreck. IN POLITICAL OR SATIRICAL VERSE, WHICH HE AFTERWARDS ATTEMPTED, FALCONER SIGNALLY FAILED. IN AMATORY POETRY HE HAD BETTER SUCCESS, FOR HE WROTE FROM GENUINE PASSION AND TRUE IMPULSES. Stanzas LIKE THE FOLLOWING HAVE RARELY PROCEEDED FROM THE ORLOP OR MIDSHIPMAN'S CABIN. ADDRESS TO MIRANDA THE SMILING PLAINS, PROFUSELY GAY, ARE DRESSED IN ALL THE PRIDE OF MAY. The birds on every spray above to rapture wake the vocal grove, but ah, Miranda, without thee, nor spring nor summer smiles on me. All lonely in the secret shade, I mourn thy absence, charming maid. O soft as love, as honor fair, serenely sweet as vernal air, come to my arms, for you alone can all my absence pass the tone. O come and to my bleeding heart thy sovereign balm of love impart. Thy presence lasting joy shall bring, and give the year eternal spring. We also subjoin the second of these pieces, which in plaintive tenderness and melody is equal to the ballad strains of the author's countryman, Mickle or Millette. The Fond Lover, a ballad written at sea by the author of the shipwreck. A nymph of every charm possessed that native virtue gives, within my bosom all confessed, in bright idea lives. For her my trembling numbers play along the pathless deep, while sadly social with my lay the winds in concert weep. If beauty's sacred influence charms the rage of adverse fate, say why the pleasing soft alarms such cruel pangs create since all her thoughts by sense refined unartful truth express say wherefore sense and truth are joined to give my soul distress if when her blooming lips i press which vernal fragrance fills through all my veins the sweet excess in trembling motion thrills say whence this secret anguish grows congenial with my joy and why the touch where pleasure glows should vital peace destroy if when my fair in melting song awakes the vocal lay not all your notes ye throng such pleasing sounds convey thus wrapped all o'er with fondest love why heaves this broken sigh for then my blood forgets to move i gaze adore and die Except my charming maid, the strain which you alone inspire, to thee the dying strings complain that quiver on my lyre. O give this bleeding bosom ease that knows no joy but thee. Teach me thy happy art to please, ordain to love like me. William Falconer, Royal George, August second, seventeen sixty-two before the close of the year the duke of york sailed again in command of the fleet and falconer thinking probably with gray that it is better that gratitude should sing than expectation wrote an ode on the duke of york's second departure from england as rear admiral he composed it said grosvenor hunter who was then a midshipman in the royal george during an occasional absence from his messmates When he retired into a small space formed between the cable tiers and the ship's side grosvenor hunter must have been mistaken in his recollection of the piece thus composed the ode was not published till some months after the duke's departure and it is an elaborate production of above two hundred and thirty lines in all the intricate variety of meter to be found in dryden's great ode on saint cecilia's day of which it is in some respects an imitation though in quality more akin to the early Pindaric attempts of swift the gratitude of the poet is warmly expressed and in the conclusion of the ode he hints that he may yet be called upon to celebrate some great naval victory perhaps the chief to whom i sing may yet ordain auspicious days to wake the lyre with nobler lays and tune to war the nervous string For who, untaught in Neptune's school, through all the powers of genius he possess, though disciplined by classic rule, with daring pencil can display the fight that thunders on the watery way, and all its horrid incidents express. To him, my muse, these warlike strains belong, source of thy hope and patron of thy song. This warlike wish was frustrated by the Treaty of Peace between Great Britain, France, and Spain, which was signed at Paris on the 10th of February, 1763. As Falconer could not have obtained further promotion in the Royal Navy without some years of service, he was advised to exchange into the Civil Department, and in the year 1763 he was appointed purser of the Glory Frigate, 32 Guns. The purser, as he himself has stated, is an officer appointed by the lords of the admiralty to take charge of the provisions of a ship of war, and to see that they are carefully distributed to the officers and crew, according to the instructions which he has received from the commissioners of the navy for that purpose. Thus settled, the naval poet completed his happiness by marrying his Miranda, who appears to have been every way worthy of his affection mr clark says mrs falconer is described to me as displaying keen abilities and that it was the luster of her mind rather than that of her person which attracted and confirmed the affection of her husband a contemporary of the lady who knew her and a man of literary tastes mr joseph Mosier describes the poet's wife as a woman of cultivated mind elegant in her person and sensible and agreeable in conversation End of section one.